welcome. Roisin Foster joining me today here for the first episode of Do Gooders NI podcast. Uh, Roisin, how are you? Good, thank you, Nadine. Yes, enjoying being retired, I would have to say. It's um, well, that's exactly it's a different what life, but yeah. I'm going to talk to you about that, Roisin. So, uh-huh. obviously, I was doing a wee bit of research about you beforehand. You and I have crossed paths many times in our, in our kind uh-huh. of work lives. Um, 30 years in the sector, is that right? Like, how did, um, yeah. you, how did you get involved in the charity sector? That's interesting. So, um, I did a degree in modern languages. So, you know, it's not an obvious thing. And then I did library and information science. And I started my career then with MENCAP, mainly doing information work and general admin. And then gradually sort of worked up the totem pole until I started managing and managing services. And, um, you know, that that really started me off. But um, I suppose in a way, when I was at um, Queen's doing my postgrad, we had um, someone come in and talk. It was, I don't know if you ever knew Irene Kingston. And she was policy information person with... um, Northern Ireland Association for Mental Health. And she's a very inspiring woman. She's now long retired, but she talked about the importance of providing accurate information to people in need and indeed from a compassionate standpoint. And I found it quite inspiring. And I thought, hmm, if an opportunity came up to work in the voluntary sector, I think I would like that. And I mean, it was before I was married and you know, just doing my immediate postgrad year. So an opportunity arose and I seized it and stayed in the sector my whole career, really. Did you start off in MenCap then? Is that where you started your career? I did. Yes, I started in MenCap. I was there about 12 years. And then I moved to Leonard Cheshire in physical disability. And then um, chief executive of what was then the Ulster Cancer Foundation and then Cancer Focus. And certainly the change from being a UK-led organisation to a Northern Ireland-led organisation was interesting. How did you find that, Roisin? Because I've worked in UK-wide organisations and I now work in HNI, which is still kind of part of Age UK, but separate. How did you find, what did you find was the biggest transition there working from UK to I suppose, you know, where I always struggled with the London-based organisations, I always felt that I was wearing shoes a size or two too big. And it didn't quite fit. You know, there were perfectly serviceable shoes. There was nothing wrong with the shoes. They just didn't fit my feet. Um, so you were constantly having to scale things down and scale things back. And um, it, you ended up with solutions that were much too complex, you know, for the scale of organization that I was managing. And it was, it was nearly liberation moving to an organization that was local. And um, I suppose that then it came also with, you know, becoming chief executive, which in its way is also liberating because, you know, you are very much in conjunction with your board. You know, you are in the driving seat and you can shape things. Whereas, you know, when you're a small peg in a very large organisation, it is hard, you know, to, to get your voice heard and, you um, 
you it just I suppose it suited my personality as well to be honest with you you know but it was far and away you know my final job was far and away the job that I liked best and what would um, you say would have been one of your biggest challenges that you faced as chief executive because my interpretation of being a chief executive is that it's it can be seen as quite a lonely role um you know you're very much the head of the house you run the house you've got to run a tight ship as what we, would all, we would always say in age and i run on a tight ship but obviously that must be quite you know it, how, how is that is it a lonely role or how did you kind of overcome that I mean, I think it sometimes goes to your personality as well. Um, in some ways, I mean, I'm quite gregarious. In other ways, I am a bit of a loner. And I did uh, one of the leadership programs with CO3. And one of the first questions they asked, are you an introvert or an extrovert? And I kind of looked, and Nora looked at me as if to say, like, you're so an extrovert, you know. But actually, you know, when we worked through it, I turned out to be an extrovert with intro, introvert intuition. So mm -hmm. I need time on my own and I need, you know, my interests and hobbies are quite solitary things. You know, I'm one of eight children. So oh. I've always valued solitary time and personal time. And I actually find that kind of, in some ways, self-reliance a good thing. Um, I've never been lonely, you know, I'd say about a lonely job. I, I've never really felt a sense of loneliness. I've missed people who are no longer with us. Um, and it's one of the big downsides of my job, of what was my job is, you know, the loss of service users and, and people that you become close to. But, you know, a, a loneliness isn't something I feel hugely. As I say, I'm one of a big family. And then I had four children. My husband had four children ourselves. So, you know, we've always the been surrounded by people. <laughs> yeah, I, this year might be a wee bit different, but um, it's, you know, I didn't find that overly challenging. It's, it's who you can discuss things with. And every time you speak, you're still speaking on behalf of the organization. Mm -hmm. So there's times when there's a limit on how honest you can be. And normally if it's in my head, it's out my mouth and I've had to kind of um, rein that in. And um, it's, you know, knowing who you can trust and the environment you can trust them in. And, um, you know, I will go to courses and, and they'll say, oh, it's Chatham House Rules and nothing will be discussed. And I'm thinking, yeah, right. You know, in the right environment, all <laughs> this will there. come out. Whether it's attributable or not, it'll come out. And, you know, you hear things that come back to you and think, oh, well, I know who not to talk to again about things. Those are things that you kind of learn. Um, but, you know, it is a great job. I mean, in, in some ways, you'll be in the chief executive of a charity is as near as you get in a way to running your own business without the risks. You have your board there for support and for guidance. Um, but whatever happens, you get paid at the end of the month. If you run your own business, you don't necessarily. And was uh, there anybody in particular, Roisin, who, you know, kind of, you would have lent on, like anybody in particular in terms of like a leader that you would have thought, you know, a mentor and said, do you know what, I'm 
working my way through something here, I'll pick up the phone because we always have those type of people when you're out networking yeah. and meet people. Um, yeah. Was there any one Without person in particular? Yeah. Or? I mean, certainly um, Maureen Pickett, who was um, the chief executive of MenCap in Northern Ireland for a number of years while I was there, and Maureen has stayed a very true friend. Mm -hmm. And I will talk things over with her. I would have been very, very frank with my chair, or Professor Spence. There was, I would have told Roy anything, and he would have listened. And um, you know, it was very good sounding board and gave guidance. And um, we just talked things out, you know. And that's a hugely important role that, that that relationship between the chief executive and the chair. If it isn't right. It can be very comfortable on both sides, really. Uncomfortable yeah. on both sides. Um, so I was very fortunate. I mean, the, the Cancer Focus Board in general were very, very supportive. And again, from going to CO3 things, you know, we've heard examples of chief executives trying to work with boards who were really quite toxic. You know, you wondered what their motivation was. And I never had that. I never had that. And you know, people brought different skills to the table and I would have phoned one person to talk over something and a different board member to talk over something else according to where I perceived their skills were and their experience was. Um, and so from that perspective, you know, you did have that network of support and also your senior team. Absolutely. The senior team, you need to have openness with your senior team as well and then need to know where the problems were. And um, again, they bring different skills and different perspectives on things. Um, and I would have you know, consulted very widely, but bearing in mind at the end of the day, if there was a difference of opinion, you know, I'd have made decisions and sometimes hard decisions and unpopular decisions, but if I felt in my heart, it was the right thing for the organization. Um, then that's what I would have done, you know. Yeah. Um, and I think you've kind of touched on something there in terms of, you know, making difficult decisions, challenges. Um, I would say, you know, we've all identified certain challenges that have happened over the last five or six months. Uh, definitely. And I suppose one of the questions I have for you would be, what do you feel has been your most, you know, what, what challenges have you faced over the last five to six months? But also what would you say are the lessons, if you're going to impart that knowledge, you know, what lessons have you learned over the last five or six months? Because obviously none of us saw this coming and it came and hit us. Yeah. So if there's any kind of lessons that you've learned, what would you say those were? Mm, very interesting question, Nadine. I would say without a doubt, the, the past six months were the most stressful mm. that I've experienced, certainly in this job. Um, I've... I think there's a lot going on. For a start, I'd given notice to retire last September and was intending to retire in March. So I was already thinking myself into a different life, to be honest. Yeah. But, um, you know, the, <laughs> I suppose, you know, I was brought up with a very strong sense of duty. You know, the thing that was always drummed into us was do the right thing and do the thing right. And those were those two lessons that were kind of drummed into you. If it was making your bed when you were away, whatever it was, you know, you do the right thing. When you get up out of bed, you make your bed. And yeah. then and you make a pump. You know, and it's absolutely and that I suppose has stayed with me. And it's important 
to join an organisation well, it's important to do your job the best you can and it's important to leave well and to leave with the right motivation. You're doing it for the right reasons and you're doing it right and you're leaving a nice tidy house as you go out. And I wasn't able to do that right. And I think I will always have that as a regret, Nadine. There's people I didn't get to say goodbye to and thank you to. I may never see them again. And that will be a sense of great regret. But, you know, when I didn't get to leave in March because Richard who came in after me had to work notice and it was agreed that I would stay until the end of May. And then realistically, he said, you know, how feasible is it for me to come into an organisation where I come in, can't really come in through the door? And I mean, that was fine. So I agreed to stay on, but it was staying on in a very difficult situation. So the office was more or less closed. A lot of staff were furloughed. People were working, you know, a week here and a week there to do essential processes. And it was a I'm trying to keep things going. I mean, it's as an organisation, you know, it's over 90% dependent on fundraising so there's some contracted stuff but very little so it's organizations like um, ours that have been so very very badly hit other organizations that you know were maybe 90 percent government funded have been hit less badly um at the moment anyway so far and um that may well change um, as time goes on, but it's where things are at the minute. So I think for a start, we went into organisational shock. I mean, I felt like a rabbit in the headlights. I've never met anything like this before. What was going to happen? What could I do? And the main, my main priority and the discussions I was having with the chairman and the treasurer was about survival, Nadine. It was oh, just, can we survive this? How long can we survive? How can we survive this? How can we um, do the best we can for our service users and get through this? And, and we did get a plan. You know, I was asked to do a strategic plan for the next while. And I was very clear that I was not the person to implement this. This wasn't fair for me to do plan for somebody else to deliver. Um, and it's not fair for Richard to come in and have to revamp an organisation when he hasn't even got to know. I'm sure it's something he would have wanted to do in six months or 12 months, but he's being forced to do it now. And, you know, people are being forced to do things that they really never wanted to do. And it's about trying to make the best of it. Absolutely, and yeah. I think the lessons, to get back to your question, the lessons were very much about, I suppose, getting back to your core values and your core activities. And what, what are the essential things we should be delivering? Mm -hmm. And what things then can we let go? now and I think as an organization and like many organizations will be doing fewer things and really focusing on what's essential what's nobody else doing or what what are the things with the greatest waiting list so you know at a time in some areas cancer focus had four or five month waiting lists for counseling wow. now you know some of those people didn't have that amount of time to live and um, we were getting in before I retired, we were at the stage of you know, councillors um, approaching people on the waiting list to find that they'd passed away. Um, 
Now, not all the people we counsel are terminally ill, you know, um, I don't want to give that impression, but um, the waiting lists are just getting longer, um, and yet the need is greater because what happens a lot in, for example, in cancer treatment is you go in and you're kind of on a routine, you know, you, know, you may be yeah. every, every week for so, depending on your protocol, you see the same wee faces. So you get a lot of support, peer support from people who are walking the same journey and yeah. you get a lot of support from the specialist nurses and to try and limit the risk you know, treatment is much more black and white now. You stay in your car and you're beeped and you go in and you get your treatment and you don't see people. It's part of, it's part of keeping everyone safe. But those avenues of support are closed off. So the need is still there and organisations like ours are less able to meet that need. Um, so there's a physical impact and there's also the psychological impact. And there are people who've been red flagged as a potential cancer patient before lockdown and they should have been seen within 14 days and they weren't being seen yeah. because it wasn't happening. And so mortality will be higher and people, there will be greater need. Um, and organisations like ours won't be there or won't be there in the same amount. So yeah. it is about looking at what is absolutely essential and what must we do and how can that be delivered and how can you fundraise in a time of social distancing um, and what does the future hold? Yeah. I, I don't and it's also any of that is assured. Yeah, and it's also about a if obviously people are going in and they're having their treatment and it's quite a solitary process, then there's less opportunity there for those people to have anecdotal conversations with people who somebody yeah, might absolutely. say to them, yeah. oh, have you not heard yeah. of Cancer Focus do this, that and the other? And then yeah. that person might say, well, no, I didn't know that Cancer yeah. Focus offered that support. Yeah. So it's, it's almost like we need to identify new ways to make sure that when, the, when that person has been at the point of diagnosis, how do you ensure that they are given, they're still given the information that need, they need there and then, but they're still given the opportunity to find out about what else is offered, you know, as a more of a wraparound yeah. service. And obviously that's where the challenge could come. Um, I know certainly whenever I used to work in uh, Click Sergeant Children's Cancer Charity, a lot of our young service users would have been referred into Cancer Focus's family counselling. It was thinking, thinking yeah. guys have family counselling. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I know our social workers would have refer, referred family into Cancer Focus for that specific mm -hmm. type of support. And obviously that's where, you know, making sure that it's, if you have those connections, it's all about networking and relationship building and everything else within the, the services side. Um, but it's also mm -hmm. about making sure that some people just don't know what they don't know, but equally with less nope. human interaction and less human contact and less peer-to-peer -peer support perhaps available then how do you make sure that that person knows that there is additional support out there um yeah and and with younger people mercifully the numbers are smaller yeah you know the number of young people getting cancer is is vastly lower than the number of older people mm. and it's the the adult population is a much more disparate group you know they're all over the place there's more people and how do you reach them you know how do you reach the 75 year old woman you know and like of all our services i would have got 
emails and about counselling um, saying I don't think I would still be here if it wasn't for Leo or if it wasn't for whoever, whatever the counsellor was. Not because of my cancer, but because I was in such a bleak place, I couldn't see a way through it. And um, it's, you know, that need is still there and arguably likely to be greater um, and harder to find and there's less of it. And, um, because about, oh, if I can remember now, there's probably about 10% of that service is funded. The rest is all fundraising. So what the future of that will be, I just, I honestly don't know. So um, I think the world post-COVID, the voluntary sector world post-COVID will look very different. And the, you know, the government funded stuff will be safe enough for, for so long. I think, you know, the whole, funding of COVID, you know, it'll have to be paid for some time. And I think things will disappear, you know, so whatever that might be, I just don't know. But, you know, I know you wanted your, your blog to be upbeat, but it's very hard to be upbeat in this environment. Yeah. You know, it, it really yeah. is. And it, I mean, yeah, you're right. You are right, Roisin, because I think one of the things that I've noticed, certainly, you know, I, I wasn't um, in my role, I'm head of fundraising, so I'm, I, you know, I we made the decision to furlough most of our fundraising staff, like yourself, um, and we've only really got uh, most of the team back in now. Now, admittedly, they're not all, all in full time, but I think for us, it's very much being mindful mm -hmm. of whilst most, yeah. whilst the heads of us head on board, and we've been kind of managing things as we can, and now we've got people coming back in, and and all of a sudden you think, oh you're not aware of that because you weren't here you know and you forget that people haven't been about for the last five months because yeah yeah you've been going on and doing everyday things and then mm -hmm. you know remember your team says oh well, well, when did that change and you're thinking oh yeah that's right you weren't here me you know because you just you just kind of crack on with it yeah. And okay. I think, but, yeah but what i would say um and i suppose this leads me nicely on to my next question which was about you know, one of the things that I'm really proud of within our team, but also within our organisation, even though we all know that COVID has been terrible, and you're absolutely right, and we know a lot of older older people especially have been impacted, and obviously people who are living through uh, terminal illnesses and chronic illnesses as well. But I've been really proud by the immense amount of collaboration that not only we have seen within our own organisation, but also within, uh, you know, fundraisers coming together online, sharing tips in terms of how to launch virtual events. Um, you know, we ourselves within the Institute of Fundraising have been doing virtual networking and we've reached people that we've never talked to, talked to or spoken to before. So I would say for me, even though COVID has been terrible, there is part of me that thought, you know, I'm really proud that people within the voluntary sector have come together. So really my question to you would be, and this is broader than COVID, over your 30 years you know, career, what would you say, if you're looking back now and you're thinking, you know, there's bound to be moments where you've got, you're so proud and even thinking about them, I know it's gonna bring a smile to your face and this is what I like to do. It's like, you know, what would you say your proudest moments have been in, in your whole career within sector? Looking back, the things the, the thing that gives me the greatest pleasure are where people coming up behind me have really developed and you know I've had I hope a small part in that 
um, mentoring leadership roles. So, you know, in past jobs, we had, had people who came into residential work as care assistants. And they're managers now, you know, and they're managers and senior managers. And um, you know, had a manager, a scheme manager in one job who's now director of services in another organization. And, you know, I take a great pride in that. And it's the thing that gives me the greatest, especially, and I'm going to like really show my hand now, but especially young women coming into work and you know trying to never be arrogant enough to call myself a role model for anybody but being able to just sit and look and say well where do you want to be in five years and what are the barriers to getting you there and can i support you with that in any way sometimes it's a practical thing like you haven't got a management qualification or you haven't done a management qualification for 10 years, maybe going and doing something and a Ouija up, you know, yeah. wouldn't do harm. Or um, You've had a lot of stuff that say community fundraising. Would you look at doing a bit of corporate for, you know, doing a wee, you know, placement within the team or yeah. whatever it might be, just getting people to take that wee bit of time and look at where do you want to be in five years and if that's being retired that's fine it doesn't matter what it is it's that you have a plan and you know for some people being retired it's fallen off the edge of the world and they wake <laughs> up one morning and they go oh oh yeah it's monday and i don't know where to go to it has to be planned the same way as a promotion has to be planned. You've got to be looking and saying, where do I want to be? What might the barriers be? How can I get those out of the road so I can get to where I want? Mm. So you know, it, it perplexes me that people will say, go for a chief executive job and put an awful lot into their prep, but not go for the feedback if they don't get it. Right. You know, because... Because you keep making the same mistakes and don't look at feedback as a negative thing, mm -hmm. but look at it as a positive thing. You know, someone says, you know, you, your eye contact was whatever. I know I, when I did a lot of training at a time and I always trained the left hand side of the room, that's the side I looked at. And I never noticed until somebody pointed it out to me, you know, and it wasn't as a criticism, but it made me very aware of, well, actually there's people on the right hand side of the room that I need to involve them. You know, we personally, we, we think, but you know that, that life is a learning and you know you have to learn in lots of different ways and have that the humility that you don't know it all or you don't you know um but that's the thing that gives me the greatest joy and i look back at some of those people who come in to work um maybe with very few qualifications very few academic attainments for whatever reason but work darn hard and work their way up and you know, the people that I've seen move, you know, from a basic entry fundraiser to head of fundraising, you know, why wouldn't you take pleasure in something like that? You know, I think yeah, it's great. Um, and that's, that's the thing that gives me the greatest joy. Now, also the services side, but I would always have been a wee bit one removed from that, you know, that wouldn't have been as engaged with service users, certainly um, later in my career. 
um, it was always you know, working through other people and how you get then your job satisfaction working through others and that then for me is seeing them develop yeah. um, and being hugely frustrated by people who didn't want to develop that was another learning that actually some people are happy not develop they want to just do what they're doing they love doing what they're doing they don't want to be a manager they don't want to be a leader they want to be a car assistant or they want to be a, an admin officer they don't want worries they don't want a job that they've got to take home and balance and mm-hmm. and worry about i mean now i have to be honest and say i'm thoroughly enjoying not having responsibility <laughs> yeah yeah you do so- not having responsibility mean, I always had always was looking for the next thing and the next promotion and wanting more responsibility. Even at school, it would have been, oh yes, Roshin, always, you know, put your hand up, accept responsibility. I've done with it. You know, I've looked after yeah. my parents and they passed away and my mother-in-law and I reared four children, or we reared four children. And I'm quite happy just to be responsible for the garden and you know, yeah. I was going to say. So, what are your plans? You know, what are your plans now? You've got, you know, your time's your own. You're a king gardener, yeah. are you? Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, and we've just doing some landscaping work at the minute. I mean, I'm, I have a, a brace on my arm because I was moving big rocks to make a rockery out of oh, my wrist. Oh, so, no. <laughs> I've done that. Uh, so I'm kind of winged at the moment, and I do. Um, a lot of knitting and handcraft. I'm a very keen cook. I like walking and yoga. I want to spend time with my family and I want to not have a plan. I've never not had a plan, if you know what I mean. Like I won't get up in the morning nice, go, yeah. yeah, I never really had that luxury um, of having no pressure and nothing to do. Um, I mean, I'm still doing a wee bit of work. I do some tribunal work with the Disability Appeals Tribunals. Um, although they're kind of halfways and cold storage, there's not as many of them at the minute, but I've been doing them for a long time. And I could probably do three or four days a month when they're in full flow, and that would be plenty. Um, and it's quite nice work because you, you do all your prep and you do the best job you can, and then you walk away. You know, there isn't the same long-term responsibility that there was, you know, with and what my would you say, Roshi, kind of my final question to you is, you know, if you had your time again and you could give, because obviously a lot of people will be listening to this and think, oh, you know, I didn't know that about Roshi, or that's really interesting, or, you know, okay, yeah, have a plan. But if you were to uh, say one, you know, give one piece of advice to your younger self, what would that be and what would you say to kind of younger people today? Mm, that's interesting. I mean, I think the world that people are going to be working in now is going to be very, very different from the one I worked in. Um, I don't want to sound arrogant. I, I wouldn't. I'm not a one for looking back and wanting to change. I know it's strange. I don't have any regrets. I mean, at a practical level, I wish I hadn't done languages at university, for example. How much good is that? I thoroughly enjoyed it at the time, but really, I wish I hadn't done that. But what's the point in regrets? I can't change that. You know, I just can't change that. Um, I think 
there's a huge thing about boundaries and um, I always tried my very best to be boundaried about work and yeah. life. And um, I, in the modern working environment, that is increasingly difficult when people are working from home, working at home, the iPhone thing, the 24-hour, a few people from I was ringing you, you didn't answer. I'm thinking, yes, <laughs> I was in the garden. I do not take the phone out when I'm out in the garden. I do not take the phone when I'm going for a walk. No, I want my head. So there isn't that headspace. And I think that will take a terrible toll moving forward. You know, I would never have been a person to bring the children's photographs into the office, for example. You know, I kind of spent an with my children that I did recognize them when I went home. You know, I didn't need to have them putting on my desk. And, but that was just me, you know, I just, and at the same time when I was at home and off duty, that was my private time. And I resented people who, who phone and disturb that unless I had very good reason. Um, so somebody phoning me on a Saturday because they wanted a day off on Monday. No, let me know on Friday. Oh, sorry, oh, oh, oh. sorry don't worry. Oliver. Oliver, go to bed. That's a good boy. Good boy. So <laughs> <laughs> there must be somebody or something has disturbed him. So yes, I think about boundaries is very important and I don't know how people will manage that moving forward. Um, but I think it's it's keeping a sense of yourself that you're not your job yeah your job may be a part of you I mean I was always a wife and mother who worked you know I was never first of all a, a, an employee you know and I think um, I was very clear that that's where I reside you know I reside as a person in my family and in my home and the you know not just my own children but my siblings etc um, and I always worked to live and I, I didn't live to work and, and I, I think, think that's that a really important lesson yeah really important lesson and I think probably a lot of people have realized that through you know going through lockdown and and obviously now as you say working at home um, it's probably given people a lot of opportunity to assess you know what is important to them if the if the lines were perhaps blurred, um, because they've almost been forced into a situation where if you are working at home, um, you can't continue to work because you have little people looking at you needing fed, or you know it yes. starts to encroach in your family life, and therefore it is about setting those boundaries. But I think that's a really definitely think boundaries is a huge one, and it's and. Mm -hmm. it, it's kind of like what you said there about you know treating everybody as individual it's about you know in the organizations it's about, i heard this term um earlier on today i was watching another podcast and they said um it's humans not hierarchy um and it's all about human interaction in the workplace and it's not about hierarchy it's just about bringing people together and looking at that kind of collaboration and everything um so my final question then is so obviously you're you're retiring, you're gonna be loving life and it's all gonna be a distant memory to you. You're you're smiling every day, looking after, looking after your greenhouse and, and, and trying not to injure yourself obviously by changing your garden. But then if you had a magic wand, Roisin, what would what would the one change be that you would like to see happen within the charity sector in Northern Ireland? Money's no object. <laughs> Money's no object. <sighs> That's a good one. 
I suppose you, I would start with, you know, where is the greatest need? Yeah. And how can, how can the third sector work to address that? Because, you know, we have areas of over-provision, we have areas of under-provision, we have assumptions made about stuff. Um, so, for example, if we look at social deprivation and the huge need in social deprivation, but that can end up isolating people also in other communities. So, you know, I worry about our young people. I worry about how isolated young people are, that the relationships they form are all through technology and not through persons. And um, I worry about the mental health of our young people. I worry about everyone's mental health in this environment. But I'm not, you know, I look at how my generation have raised our children by being, you know, I mean, I've, I, someone described it to me as like curling where we go ahead of our children taking all the bumps out of the ice so that they have a nice smooth passage. Life isn't like that. You, know, you have to build in resilience too. And you have to, you know, you have to teach them to suck it up buttercup. Life isn't always as smooth. And, and I don't know that we've been great as parents. And I heard someone years ago saying, you know, we've struggled so hard to give our children the things we didn't have. We've forgotten to give them what we did have. Yeah. And that has been very much the forefront of my mind. Those, those things about taking risk and being able to go out on your bike and, you know, being able to go to things and not see an FP stranger as the bogeyman. Yeah. You know, it's just... I don't know, maybe it's just an age thing, but I do worry about um, how we support this generation of people who, and not just people who are lacking um, money and, and it, it's opportunities, it's real friendships, it's a future. Um, and I think that, that I think mental health issues will become greater and greater. And I do I don't have the answer of how to address it. But if I had a magic wand, I wouldn't I'd say I'm not um saying that we go backwards. I'm saying about how can we build in that strength in young people and in society in the environment we're living in. I don't have the answer to it. But I see a lot of unhappiness and see a lot of unhappiness in my kids friends and these were kids from you know reasonable environment went to good schools got into good universities and there's no jobs you know and it's yeah. that generation that being hit by not getting on the property ladder they're not um you know jobs and opportunities and they're being hit very very badly now um by COVID, you know, that's generation who haven't had a chance to, you know, put money behind them so that they can have a wee bit of savings, that they can live, they can rub along for six months. Um, and I'm not talking about fast wealth, I'm, I'm talking about, you know, making your rent or making your mortgage and things like that. So, you know, I do worry if, if we have a second wave and if things are as bad as before, how long can our society survive? Um, 
and it is hard to be positive in this. I mean, what I would say as it was positively is, you know, the third sector in Northern Ireland has been innovative and has looked at different ways of doing things and are very in touch with, with service users. Yeah. You know, organisations that are smaller, you know, some of those huge organisations that, you know, have thousands of staff and, you know, thousands and thousands of service users, it's hard to be close with people. Our organisations tend to be quite in touch and listening. Um, so I think that the opportunities are there. Um, it's hard to get collaboration when competition is so tight though, you know, because, you know, as chief executive, you're a first job is the survival of your own organization isn't it yeah. unless you've an agreed plan or, merge or something like that um, so it isn't easy um, and I certainly wish my success or every success and, and I think the rest I, of the sector yeah. every success because it's going to take real skill it is, it's going to take real skill and I think it's gonna it's gonna push people into an area that perhaps they're not naturally comfortable with, and it's gonna push people or organisations into perhaps areas that they're not necessarily comfortable with. And I think you're right. I think it is a case of everybody acknowledging that. Look, none of us know what's gonna happen around the corner. All we can do is keep each other well informed, whether that's internally through our own respective organisations or our service users and um, keep everybody well informed as best we can um, and equally you know pivot and shift our services where we feel we're able to do that and you know in the hope that we're maintaining a level of service that obviously isn't perhaps what we would like to be able to deliver at this time but it's the best that we can do right now so um i think you've said a few key things there and you know, all I would want to say to you, Roisin, is uh, thank you for taking the time out today because you didn't need to, and I appreciate that. You know, your time, <laughs> your time's your own now. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, in my eyes, my my nanny always used to say to me whenever I was younger, you know, Nadine, always be a do-gooder, never never do anything bad. So do-gooders and I was kind of like my wee idea that I've had for a long time. And I just thought, you know what, I'm just going to do this now because, like, who knows what's going to happen tomorrow? So um, whenever you said to me that you were leaving and I would retire, and I thought, geez, why not get Roisin on and have a bit of crack with her and chat and hear, hear your story? Oh, no. I, yeah. I could be ringing you next time, and you could say to me, "No, Nadine, I'm on a, I'm, a, I'm away now. I'm, I'm like, you know, I'm sitting out my veranda." <laughs> I just, you know, when you said do gooders, I mean, a few years back, I was on Radio Ulster. And it was about um, some of the tobacco work that we were doing and, um, you know, trying to prevent young people starting smoking and helping people who want to give up. And it isn't a nanny thing. It isn't a finger up and all the rest of it. But this guy said to me, oh, you're such a do-gooder. And I said, well, thank you very much. I was <laughs> really proud to be able to think I've done some good. I'm not sure that's what he meant, but I said, well, thank you. That was a compliment. <laughs> well, you have. You have. You've done, you've done 30 plus years of good, and I'm sure you've many more of you. <laughs> Thanks, Nadine. Okay, thank Hope you so much, Roisin. All the best. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye.